Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest, and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. Today, for the first episode, we're going to talk about why you should consider managing your own money. So, Steve, welcome. Good to be here. Yeah, let's get into (laughs) it. So, uh, we've developed a model over time called the three C's of why you should manage your own money. So, that's based on cost, choice, and control. Yeah. And what we're going to talk a bit about today is the financial services industry, how it's set up, how it's skewed in favour of generating fees, but not necessarily maximising returns. So, we want to talk a little bit about why you should consider managing your own money. So should we start with the three C's then? And we'll start on cost. So obviously the funds management and the super industry and the financial services industry more broadly, very successful at what it does because I think people get a lot of peace of mind from the idea that somebody else is managing their money. Um, But the thing is, at the end of the day, when things go wrong, you can't blame somebody else because it is your money. That's and a, yeah. It's the old, um, probably not the best phrase for a person like me, but don't ask a barber if you need a haircut, haircut yeah. <laughs> because um, the advice that you generally get in financial services, and this is the same in real estate, it's the same in financial advisory, funds management, often the advice uh, tends to maximise fees, but not necessarily returns. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the reason for the three C's is basically, if you have a look, and it, it, it brings it back to that thing you were saying about, you know, don't ask a barber if you need a haircut. That's Every, a really bad example. Yeah, somebody like everybody's myself. got to have a job, right? And so you don't, you know, I think it was Adam Smith, you know, 200 years ago said something about, oh, you know, it's not from the benevolence of the baker or the butcher that they provide you with a service. They provide you with a service because they're there to profit. Well, that's the same in the finance industry. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, that's horrible, but what it means is that if you invest, you know, 30, 40 years, you pay about 1% and it can vary. Sometimes you can pay a lot more, sometimes you can pay less. But what you're doing is you're paying over 20 or 30 years a really, really large amount of money to get someone else to manage your money. Now, if someone said to me, well, can they add value? It's like, well, yes, they can. But when you look at the stats, the stats bear out that a lot of the time they don't beat the market. And so it would be different if you know, they came back every year and said, look, you know, because of my expertise or my talent, I made you X amount of dollars over and above what you could have done yourself. But the reality is that doesn't happen. So that's the first point. The second point about choice is a lot of fund managers or superannuation managers have a set asset allocation, a strategic asset allocation. And so they've got to stay within that if you get to understand market cycles and flows and that sort of thing, you get to realise that there's sort of good times you could be in the market and bad times to be in the market. 
But if a financial company or a service provider has got a certain strategic asset allocation, they'll just stay within that. Mm -hmm. And so that's not necessarily the best thing for you all the time. And so if you manage your own money, you've got a greater choice. Like these days you can invest in, you know, Russian hog futures, you know, like all sorts of stuff. Two flies running up a wall. Two flies running up a wall. Or you can short them. (laughs) Yeah, because certainly, uh, I mean, it's a few years ago now, obviously, but when I was working as a Group FC, I can remember, and this isn't even that long ago, I'd have to phone up a stockbroker. He would get me a price, you know, but shares in Telstra, whatever it was. Phone back later in the, the day, we got you $4, whatever the price was. They charge their fee. I mean, to say that things have changed in that regard would be an enormous understatement. Absolutely, Um, yeah, yeah. So these days, you don't have to have the same home bias. When markets are expensive, as they have been in recent years, you can look further afield at emerging markets that may be cheaper uh, while waiting for valuations to come down. There's a lot more stuff you can do these days at a sort of like a click of a button. You can set up a trading platform in you know, to be quite honest, probably half an hour, yeah. 15 minutes, you know, and it's sort of like right off you go, you can go and start trading. I think it, it can be a blessing and a curse to a certain extent. I mean, I think that one of the huge benefits has been that you used to have to be a stock picker to some extent and you had to pick your, you know, in Australia, the banks were very popular, Telstra, yep. you know, that we mentioned, the usual uh, mum and dad investor staples. Uh, I mean, these days you don't have to be a stock picker, uh, which is good because obviously, the capitalist distribution, a lot of companies never turn but, around. Uh, but you can own an ETF that owns a whole index, yeah. which is good. I think the the downside to the choice is that sometimes people overcomplicate what they their strategy and what they need to do. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot to be said for simplicity. It's, a, it's funny because over the years that I've been investing, you just tend to sort of go towards companies and as I sort of say to people, it's a lot more interesting if you're, you know, sitting around and you say, oh, you know, I bought BP or oh, I bought BHP or something. That's more interesting than saying, oh, yeah, I bought the Australian index. And people would be sort of like, mm, yeah, OK. But if it's BP or, you know, BHP or something more specific, you can just generally talk about it. So that sort of is the third C with the control part of it, which is you can control your asset allocation, where you invest, what you invest in, how much you invest in, you know, do you want to buy and hold? No, I want to buy and sell. Do you want to be a trader? You know, blah, blah, blah. So with that, of course, comes responsibility and education. You know, you've got to look at that side of it as well. But broadly, what we sort of do is say to people, look, if you can manage your own money, you don't have to be Warren Buffett or some type of genius to manage your own money. It's actually fairly simple. What complicates it is twofold. The first thing I've always found is money is serious, right? People like money. No surprises, I like it myself. And the more I can have of it, the better I feel. But the thing is, it's actually not that difficult. And you tend to sort of think, oh, well, if something's serious and it's complex, then that makes it difficult. And it's not really that way. I mean, as you know, you can buy an index, do nothing, go away, come back, rebalance. That's all you need to do. You don't have to be a stock picker. That's just adding degrees of complexity to it. So you can put your wealth in somebody else's hands, but you can't really in a lot of ways these days complain too much if they don't perform well for you because it's a bit like, well, it's not as if, like you were saying in the old days, you had to rely on the stockbroker. You can do it yourself now if you're sufficiently motivated. 
it's not that hard to do. Going back to the first point then on cost, I mean, obviously as a chartered accountant, I always you know, go back to the spreadsheets. And the thing that I think is probably underappreciated is, I mean, the financial services industry in general, you know, and we're not being critical, we're just, just observant, is set up to clip the ticket, you know, and it might be 1% per yeah. annum, sometimes... There well, they got a, a mortgage too. That's right. And, um, you know, we're not critical of that, just, just observing uh, the situation as it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, <clears> and sometimes there are performance fees and sometimes the churn creates extra costs and so on. You know, one or two percent per annum. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it's not just the fees that are generated year in, year out. Just on that, Alan Kohler wrote an article oh, about two, three months ago about fees. And he wrote an article back in about 2000 and eight or nine, I think, on fees. Mm. And it, it is, when you look at it, you know, over 20 or 30 years, you can pay 250 to 300,000 in mm. fees. Yeah, it's the, you know, the so incremental amount, obviously, the, the larger your fund, super fund balance, the larger uh, the, the fee, fees. The more fees you pay. But I think the real kicker and what's underappreciated, is not just the fees themselves, but it's it's the compound growth that is not yeah, yeah. allowed to flourish as a result of the fees. Uh, yep that can make such a stupendous difference over 20, 30, 40 years. Well, particularly if a lot of them say buy the index or, you know, track the index fairly closely, it's not as if they can come back and say, look, I added value by buying dot, 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 and they all outperformed. A lot of them have to, by sheer dint of the amount of money they've got, have got to stay fairly close to the index. So, you know, that makes it really hard for you to get more than the average return. Mm. I think to a certain extent, you know, people often say fundies don't beat the index, but an awful lot of the time, that's not really the goal. The goal is sticking to a mandate, not deviating too far from the average return yeah. and so on. So I think um, the three Cs is the, is the model that we cover that point as to why you should consider managing your own money. You touched on a really interesting point there, average returns. It's, a, it's something that gets banded around a lot. And I think it's somewhat misrepresented, particularly at a time when markets are expensive yep. and expected returns are low. Um, I often read in the sort of financial guru pages about the, the average return you should expect, 8 to 10% or whatever it is. If you actually go back and look at, say, take the Dow Jones at 66 points at the, at the turn of the 20th century, yep. you know, if that was compounding away at 7 plus percent, um, you'd expect it to be at 250,000 today and 500,000 yep. a decade from now, then a million. And of course, it's nowhere near that. Yep. And I think that that is a point which even relatively experienced investors sometimes either downplay or just plain overlook. And yeah. that's that the average return uh, is somewhat meaningless to you as an individual because yeah. if the average returns 15, yeah, well, that's no good if, if your parents got... If he got, got 30 and yeah. the average return's 15, yeah. guess how much you got? Yeah, or if your parents Zot. parents got 15 yeah, yeah, and yeah. you get zero uh, or, or whatever it may be. And the same applies to all asset classes. Um, you know, often here in real estate about, um, you know, well, property should double every decade or whatever yeah, the yeah. phrases are. But of course, that's cherry picking data over a certain time period and it's historic. Yeah. And the same in stocks. You know, we've seen in the past couple of years, it's been very difficult for people like us talking about where you've got the price that you pay matters. Yeah, the yeah. CAPE ratio is at 33. Absolutely. And people are saying, don't worry about it. The average return should be 8, 9, 10%. But of course, yeah, the geometric return is really what you need to understand. So Yeah, yeah. The, the problem with the average return or the, the problem with any investment is, you know, if you go into a, a, any financial advisor and you sort of say, oh, what can I expect over 20 or 30 or 40 years? 
you'll probably hear, well, you know, you'll get an average return, which is about 8 to 10%, you know, blah, blah, blah. The problem with that is, first of all, you're not the average, right? And as you point out, an average is a, is a statistical compilation of a group of individuals. And it's a simple thing by saying there's 10 blokes in a room and they're all billionaires, right? One of them's Bill Gates and the other nine have got nothing. What's the average? Well, the average is billions because Bill's got more than the rest of them. So, you know, that's good if you're Bill, not much good if you're, <laughs> not much good if you're one of the other nine. Yeah. And so what you've got to look at and the hard part for the industry is to say to people, well, from this point, if you use history from this point, you could lose 30 to 40% over the next 10 years, which is what, you know, the CAPE ratio tells you about, the cyclically adjusted PE ratio. But at other times, you can walk into a financial advisor and say, well, what will I get? And if the market's really low, as in 1982, you got 16% per year in the US market. But from 2000, when the CAPE was 44 You've had 18 years of like really great runs. You think it's fantastic. The Gen X has come in to invest because they've now hit the, you know, I'm 25 or 30, I'm going to invest. They get awful returns because they're in a secular bear or they're in a bear market. So if you're investing, you want to look at what are the odds? You know, what's my expected return? Well, from here, it's 2%. Okay, that's not a very good thing to be in the market. If you say it's 12%, well, then you should put more in. The problem is at 2%, everybody's drunk because they've had really great returns. And at 12%, nobody wants to invest because they're all scared. So you get the problem where the average return, like from 82 to 2000, the average return was about 16, right? But from 2000 to 2009, you lost 65% or something. You lost 65% of the 600% that you made from 82 to 2000. Well, there's your average 8%. Hmm. If you were clever, you'd say, well, why did I make 16 in 82 and why did I lose 50% over nine years from 2000? Because that's what the market said you were going to get as a return. Yeah, I think, I think the other underappreciated point, you lose 20% one year, you make 20% the next. The, the average return or the arithmetic yeah, yeah. mean may be zero, but actually <clears throat> if you lose 20%, you actually have to work much harder to make that 20% yeah, back. Yeah. And this is why in our book, Low Rates, High Returns, a couple of the key principles there that we've touched on. Uh, one is uh, market cycles and mean yep. reversion. And a second of the key principles is actually buying low. Because yep. um, if you suffer a 20% drawdown in your portfolio, you've got to work much harder to get back just yeah. the way you started. And heaven forbid, if you go in at the market peak and lose 50 then you've got to literally double well, you've got to double to get back to where you just were. to get back to where you started. So and that's, that's what I mean about the RBA put out a, a paper about three or four months ago. I was quite pleased, really, because it mentioned the geometric return. And this is what I mean. You buy a stock at a dollar and it goes to a dollar twenty, right? So you've made 20%. Now, lose 20%. Most people go, oh, you go back to a dollar. No, no, no. You're losing 20% of a dollar twenty, which is two times 12 you go back to 96 cents. That's what you get. Mm. You don't get the average return of up 20, down 20, which is zero. You get up 20, backwards 24, and you're losing 4%. Then from 96, you've got to get back up to the original dollar. And that's the problem. That's the problem with the average 
versus the geometric return, you see. And a, a lot of it is based on, like you were saying, well, when did you buy and when did you sell? Yeah, you know? the other and thing that's uh, it's really tricky. That's been bugging me a bit about this is the, you know, when people talk about geometric returns, well, they might be a lot lower. They might be in the range of 5% mm. in the US or 6% in Australia. I mean, Australia has been a very strong performer yeah, yeah. over 120 years. But of course, that time frame isn't applicable to any individual. Yeah. Um, you know, none of us have a, a time horizon that long. You're highlighting the problem, which is, well, I started investing in 1982. Well, I got heaps of money and it's like, oh, you know, fantastic. I started in 2000 and it's so unfair because I lost 65%. And, and people like, well, know that's... this uh, intuitively because you see in the housing market, you know, young, the young generation coming into the market, people are saying, oh, you know, you know, we, we had to make sacrifices, yeah, you know, yeah, property yeah. doubled every seven years. Yep. But young people know intuitively that that's bullshit because they're buying up here. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The mortgage is maybe a million dollars and the expected returns must be lower. I think the other thing that people talk about, you know, real returns have been positive, and yes, they have, but it, it is worth bearing in mind that we've been through some periods of very high inflation, yeah, yeah. very high earnings growth. And in Once recent you take years... Off the fees, you take off taxes, you take off inflation. I think there was a Dalbar study done a few years ago which said investors actually got around 2%. Mm. Well, you sort of look at that and, and extrapolate out 2% per year. It's not exactly, you know, all honey and roses when you get to 60, when you go, well, I thought I'd have a million. I've only actually got 600,000. And you think about people in the GFC where, and this is the, my criticism of buy and hold, well, it, you know, they say, oh, well, you can hold through those downturns, you'll do all right. And, you know, smart people put more money in. Well, if you're going to retire in 2008, you were looking at a million, you got to the December 2008 and you had 600,000 or, you know, a hell of a lot less than a million. Those people can't go, oh, it's okay. I'm going to buy and hold for five years and then, you know, it'll all be sweet in 2013. It's like, hang on, I want to retire now. And so the problem, I think, the biggest issue is the buy and hold model is not the right model. And so if you don't have the right model, when it breaks down or reality doesn't fit, that's when you get the problems, mm. right? But that's not what's promoted about the way to invest. You know, it goes back to the 1960s with Harry Markowitz when he said, you know, the best thing you want to do is like buy, hold it over whatever period, and that maximises your return. And it doesn't. It doesn't maximise your return. What you've got to do is it would be simple if I said to you, imagine if I came to you every month and said, right, here's your superannuation levy, right? And let's say it's $1,000 a month. And I'd say, right, you, you can do with it what you want to do with it. Now, what happens is most people just, it goes into the market, right? And they don't worry about it. But if I came to you and said, simple charter market cycles and said to you, look, this is how it works out. This is around the bottom. You don't have to pick the day, right? You just look at it and go, look, at this stage, you'll probably get about, you know, 10 to 12%. You would say, well, that's a good bargain. I'll put some money in. If I came back to you 12 months later or every month and then said, well, now the market's gone up, so you probably get nine. Oh, okay, we'll put a bit more money in. By the time I come back to you, say, in, a, in three or four years and say, look, I'm now going to offer you 1%, you would say, well, Steve, that's not a good bet. And I would say, no, it's not. Take some money out. And the finance industry do that by rebalancing, which I haven't got a problem with. I think it's fantastic. 
But the problem is they don't talk to people about rebalancing. And it's a little bit like, well, hang on, if buy and hold's really good, why are you selling my stock? Because it's just going to go up. And it's like, oh, you know, there's risk and blah, blah, blah. And it's, the argument they make is inconsistent with what they do. Mm. That's the issue I have with it. Yeah, you'll generally be told, well, you should just hold and stay the course. It's interesting, from a timing perspective, we're recording this. Uh, the market in the past uh, 13 trading sessions is down 20.4%. <laughs> and it's an interesting time because a lot of the people have been promoting dollar cost averaging. Yeah. You can see that internally their emotions are screaming because they say every day, is this the bottom? Is this the bottom? Is this the bottom? Yep. Whereas I think what you're alluding to is... What you really want, and you know, this is a general point, it's not specific advice, but you need to have a written, some kind of written strategy. And yeah. it's one of the key principles in our book, Low Rates, High Returns, uh, systematic investing. When the market's expensive, you don't want to be 100% exposed to stocks. Because yeah. the- well, you, you think about this. Market's down 20%, right? Last year, it was up, in the equities was up about 25 I think. And people's portfolios would have been up about 18 given that they were in bonds and other stuff like that. So here we are, what is it, March, April or something, and boom, return's gone, right? Now, I've been saying to people for 12 months or even longer, look, the market's expensive, right? The US market is insanely overvalued. Why the hell would you have money in it if I said, listen, you got look, here's a chart. There's a couple of times it's done this, 1929 and it crashed uh, 60%. Yeah, that's not good. 2000 and it crashed 50%. Mm, that's not real good either. And 2007 and it crashed 50%. But by all means, stick all your money in the stock market. It's like, I mean, you just look at that and go, well, hang on, that's really dangerous. And people say, oh, you can't time the market. It's like, I'm sorry. There's a, you know, you know, in our book, there's like, here's market cycles, bull and bear markets, yeah, I, everything I, cycles. I think the point is misrepresented because I, I do agree that trying to pick markets to the day or week or month is a fool's errand, yeah. but... But who does it? Well, no, but yeah, the key point is, you know, if, if the market, let's say, take the Aussie market as an example, you were buying by April... April the, the 2009. Yeah. So, yeah. yes, you missed the bottom by... By a month. A month, but... <laughs> The point is that you can manage your exposure. And Absolutely. It, and it's different for different people. And as you mentioned, if you're pre-retirement, it might be different. But if you're shifting your allocation between 20% in stocks when the market's damn expensive yep. and maybe up to 80% when it gets very cheap, yep. then that's a workable strategy for yep. maximising returns, avoiding the drawdowns yeah. and actually maximising a geometric return. Yeah. See, um, that... You think about it, Pete, what most people do, and this is what goes on in, in massive bull markets, nobody talks about the earnings yield. Everybody wants to talk about the ASX or, you know, the, the S&P or the DAX or, you know, the, the London Stock Exchange. Let's talk about it going from 6,000 to 7,000. What you actually should say is my earnings yield's gone from 7% to 4% or, you know, 5 or whatever it is. The higher the price goes, the less you actually earn. It's that old Buffett thing. You know, price is what you pay, value is what you get. Yeah. And so the problem is people get carried away with the capital gain. But if I say to them, yeah, but you've got a, a million bucks or 500,000 exposed at 1% upside, but if it falls, you could lose 40 to 50. That's when people should be going, okay, well, that's not a really good time to be fully invested. But a lot of the time, the market is always saying, oh, well, you can't pick the bottom. And it's like, well, I'm sorry, there's lots of investors who you don't have to pick March the 9th, 2009. 
if you got in anywhere from probably November through to about July. Happy days. Yeah, happy yeah. days, you know. I actually have some first-hand experience of this too because uh, my wife set up an index fund back in Britain, yeah. uh, way back in the 90s. And the idea was dollar cost average into the FTSE. Uh, it's just a FTSE tracker, very simple. Uh, Hi, Mum, I'm getting bread. Uh, <laughs> thing via, <laughs> via um, an ISA. And, um, yeah, the, um, what we've seen is quite is very simple, and that's that when we went into the tech bubble and all the talk at the time, we knew it. I mean, I was a young youngster back then. Yep. But the, all the talk, oh, the FTSE could never get to 6,000. It's ridiculous. And it, it did, and it went it went higher still. But if you actually look at the, the pounds that we, we invested then, they... The FTSE today is back at 1997 levels. Yep. Some of the big blue chips like uh, the BPs of the world are back at 1996 levels. Yep. In real terms, it's done absolutely nothing. Now, the dollars we invested on the way down yep. and the dollars that were invested in 2009, 10, 11, as you mentioned, they've done just fine. Yep. So I've got a real personal example and it's all documented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you pay too much, you get no well, return. That's the issue. And that's what I try to say to people. People say... Oh, yeah, but if you, you know, if your dollar cost average or you put more money in, you'll do fine. And my logic is, well, hang on, if you were going to offer me 12 and then you came back and said, you know, six months later, I'm going to offer you one, why would you invest? And the, the other thing is too, the thing that really happens is if you actually went back and said to people, all right, every time you put money in the market, we're going to measure how much money you've made from that point. What you'd find is in 2009, oh, well, those investments, yeah, they made about 300%. That's what's happened. The ones from 2007, <laughs> how'd they go? Oh, they made about 40% over 12 years, you know, blah, blah, blah. After inflation, it's been Yeah, nothing. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the industry will say, well, that's a great thing of buy and hold. And it's like, no, no, no. What if I actually said, look, the CAPE ratio is really high. I'm going to wait. The market crashes. You get in down around the bottom. And as you know, the returns are like unbelievably higher. Why? Because you waited, again, the Buffettism, you waited for the fat pitch. Market's really cheap. Okay, in you go. Buy the index. It's not as if it's going to blow up and go to zero like individual companies. Mm. You know, that's why index investing is really good for most of us. I remember a friend of mine bought Woodside you know, at 65 or something, right? And last time I looked, it was 35. And after the last week, it's probably about 20 bucks. Hopefully it's not tuning in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what I'm saying is if you bought the index, if you actually said, well, if it doesn't go to zero, all I've got to do is focus on not running out of money. Now, most of us are lucky because we work and we get, you know, we get a surplus of money or the super goes into the market. But if you actually said, no, 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 that's all you get this is your one bet, you wouldn't say, oh, well, I'll just put it into the market, whatever. You'd actually say, well, hang on, what's the potential returns? Well, over here you get 12, over there you get one. You'd probably go, okay, well, I think I'll go for the 12. So that's pretty much it for today's episode. So we've given you some really good sort of grounding there as to why we think you should manage your own money or at least consider learning to manage your own money. It's based on the three Cs, so that's cost, choice and control. So you're not bound by any particular mandate or the need to invest in any country or sector, and you can certainly uh, reduce exposure when markets are expensive and build it up when they're cheap. In the next episode, we're going to talk about the challenges and the problems with buy and hold. Cheers. Cheers. See you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter 
and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.